The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So maybe know back in June we started looking at this list in Buddhism. It's called the Ten Paramis, the Ten Beautiful Qualities of the Heart. Sometimes Ten Perfections of the Heart, you know, an appropriate response, a skillful response. So in the Buddhist tradition, the qualities that would need to be there that would allow for that enlightened response or that wise response would be these ten qualities. And we'd probably come up with a very similar list if we were to brainstorm. So there's generosity, integrity, or this commitment, the non-harming, there's renunciation. So we've looked at these three already. Renunciation is really this appreciation of the joy of letting go. And next is wisdom, energy, truthfulness, resoluteness, equanimity, kindness, and patience. I don't think that's exactly the right order, but you get the sense of these. Nobody really, I don't think anybody would argue with any of these qualities. I mean, you might want to know, well, what do they mean by resoluteness? Does that mean getting tight about things? But Basically, we're understanding each of these ten terms in terms of what's skillful, not obviously in terms of what's not skillful. I mean, you can think of energy as being wholesome or unwholesome. And really, if we understand even just one of these ten qualities, we'll get a sense of the other nine. It's hard to imagine really understanding generosity, without understanding kindness, or wisdom, or truthfulness, or energy. Different expressions. And it's interesting, like, with freedom, maybe it's this way generally in life, the ends and the means seem to come into alignment. So, if you want to be peaceful, you practice being peaceful. If you want to be wise, you it means is the practice being wise. If you want to be more generous, you practice generosity. So, looking at the causes, the quality of wisdom, the causes for wisdom, we'll do this for the next few weeks. And it's interesting that probably one of the most important expressions of wisdom, at least from a Buddhist point of view, but you might relate, is a willingness to keep in mind an interest in suffering and the end of suffering. So, in other words, one of the most um, clear, distinct characteristics of ignorance, the absence of wisdom, is a kind of superficiality where Somehow that basic issue of stress, what is causing, what leads to stress in this mind, in this body, what leads to the release of stress, somehow it doesn't seem relevant. It's more relevant what's going to happen in the next season of Game of Thrones, or what my friend said to me earlier in the day, or those things get our attention, that's what our mind obsesses with. But we're not so interested in being reflective, moment to moment, like, how's the mind doing? How's the heart doing? 
is it bound up? Is it relatively free? If it's bound up, what's going on that is related or supporting that experience of being all caught up, all bound up, or reactive? Or if my heart, mind is feeling relatively light and free, unbounded, what is it that's supporting that unbounded state of mind? Like, did you have thoughts or reflect that today? I mean, here we, here we are, we have lived today, you know, whenever we got up, but we've been mostly awake, conscious for, you know, 10, 12 or more hours. And how many moments have we had an authentic interest in suffering and the end of suffering as it's actually playing out here? in our subjective experience. Clearly it's the most relevant thing, but isn't it interesting how little attention it gets? And maybe it's because we think, you know, some helplessness of whether I'm happy or unhappy has nothing to do, I have nothing to do with it, it's just like passed on down from God, from external circumstances that I don't have any control of, so why bother? to pay attention to suffering, the, you know, whether the mind is caught or tied up in knots or entangled in different ways, or whether the mind feels relatively free. But from this point of view of the Buddhas, this is the first step towards wisdom, is that this issue of stress and the release of stress is seen as relevant. So relevant that we don't ever want to forget it. We want whatever you're doing, raising kids, in grad school, you know, taking care of the great grandkids. So wherever you are in your life, working a job, what really matters is in the context of doing everything that we're doing, are we contemplating directly, immediately, in our own heart, the arising of stress and the ceasing, the releasing of stress? Because that's actually what is relevant. So to not be doing that would not be wisdom, would be ignorance. And to be doing that is an expression of wisdom. So in the Buddhist terms, you call this the Four Noble Truths. You probably, some of you at least have heard this list of teachings, and it's really foundational. And the Buddha, you know, uh, often, when you read, he talked for 45 years, maybe you don't realize that, but he had this big insight under the Bodhi tree, the proverbial tree, you know, as the stories go. And uh, he was 36 at the time, and he taught until he was in his 80s. So he taught for a long time. And uh, he, after a few years, he became quite popular in that um, place. And of course, then, that means people would seek him out. And a lot of times they'd want to ask metaphysical questions, you know, like, What's the meaning of life, or something like that? But the Buddha was very careful not to answer questions that weren't about suffering and the end of suffering. If people were somewhat close, he'd rephrase their question so it was more about, like, how is it that I got end up in these states of contraction? How would, how is it that I can this heart, this mind can be free of suffering? Otherwise, he would just either not answer or tell them that they're asking questions that he doesn't answer. Because he would say always, often, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. 
And actually, it sounds like two things. So, <laughs> but the interesting thing is to know suffering is to know the end of suffering. Or another way that he said this is, it's precisely because beings don't understand suffering. The cause of suffering is the not understanding it. We keep suffering, or in more specific terms, we keep pursuing our self-centered dramas because we don't understand it as the cause of suffering. It always seems like our self-centered dramas are about being free from suffering. I was mentioning this morning when I was giving the talk about, you know, I'm doing this experiment for however long it lasts. I'm not sure how long it will last, but it's just an experiment. It's very interesting. I'm learning a lot about my mind. I gave my car away and uh, <clears throat> earlier in the summer to my niece, who's getting started in life, finished college and working in Washington, D.C., and uh, making a lot of money. And, you know, it's still a pretty good car, not too many miles on it, so I thought it was a good could just let it go, and uh, I can afford to buy another one if I need to, and I thought, well, I'll just see what happens with this. And I notice I, I obsess, even though, you know, I'm going to try, I'm already thinking about, yeah, but when I get a new car, or a new used car, what will I get, you know? And every time something comes available, I hear about somebody selling it, well, should I get that car? And, you know, well, the hybrids be more hybrid in a few years. You know, how long should I wait? Or should I buy an old used car? I don't drive very much. So I don't really need it. You know, it's just, there's no end to this. But one thing in this process, I really see the cause of suffering. Like solving problems I don't need to solve is suffering. Thinking I need to know what I don't actually need to know is suffering. Or thinking that there's a right answer whether maybe is it the right answer, there's like lots of answers, but not necessarily one that is definitively the right answer. But wanting the right answer, well, that's suffering too. So to understand that the issue isn't whether I get a new car or when I get a new car or whether I buy a used car or whether I buy a car that gets high gas mileage or, or an old jumper that I don't drive very much, but I do need to drive a car, I use my wife's Prius and she can use the jumper and that it's not about those decisions, it's about understanding being a human being who will or will not get a car, how is it that suffering arises? How is it that suffering conceives? How can I be a person experimenting not having a car, and perhaps eventually being a person who gets a car, how can I do that without suffering? Or if I'm doing it and suffering, what can I learn about suffering? when that's what's going on. So if you're somebody falling in love, or if you're somebody getting out of a relationship, then the interesting thing is to study suffering and the end of suffering, regardless of whether you're the person getting into a relationship, or you're the person getting out of a relationship. You know, you're the person quitting a job, you're a person starting a job, or continuing a job, or whatever situation we find ourselves. Can we at least embody or inhabit this first stage or this first aspect of wisdom? Being a human being, a living being, <clears throat> that is actually somewhat continuously interested in this most relevant thing. How is it that states of stress, states of being bound up, how is it that they arise 
in this mind, not theoretically, not abstractly, but immediately, directly in this experience. And how is it that they cease? Because, you know, if we track our experience, it's all over the place. Even today, hopefully, there have been a few moments of feeling relatively light, unhindered by life, not weighed down by experience. And maybe, probably, moments today where things have felt tight or hard, difficult to bear, confusing, whatever it was. And see, superficially, we just externalize the suffering and the, the happiness or the freedom from suffering. I, like I kind of uh, thought about me, it's just about what happened to me. That person was treating me badly, so yeah, it was really hard, hard to bear. But that person was really nice to me, it was really nice, it was great. So you see how disempowering that is to think that it's always about the weather or the, our partner, how they treat us, or you know, kind of recognition we get, or how our body feels, or even like how good, how nice of a sleep we had last night, how sleepy we are now. Well, that's why I'm not happy. But we don't go past that superficiality and really look at the experience of suffering. There is suffering, it should be understood, right? It has been understood. There's a cause. Because whenever there's suffering, whenever the heart feels tight, like a squeeze, or heavy, or numb, hard to bear, then there's something happening right here and now, not out there, but right here and now, in the mind, heart, body, supporting that experience of suffering. I'm not saying that because that person said something to us, that that wasn't related to the experience of suffering. But the mind does something with that experience of somebody humiliating us. It literally takes a hold of, not of that experience of what the person said, what it takes a hold of is our interpretation of what just happened. We conceptualize, somebody insults us, humiliates us, and then the mind conceptualizes something. It has a thought, in other words, on that. They're right, I'm a jerk. I'm bad. Or, they're a jerk. What, why are they saying that about me? I'm not that way. They're trying to hurt me. But one way or another, we have an idea, and then the mind fixes claims to that idea. And it turns out that's the cause of suffering. Not that the person said something insulting or humiliating to us, but what the mind does and whatever the mind does that's the cause of suffering, it's doing it right now. Because if there's suffering, then there's something happening right now in the mind. And if the mind's not doing that, there's not suffering. We think, oh, somebody said this to me 20 years ago, so that's why my heart hurts. But that's not technically correct. It may be technically correct that somebody said something 20 years ago, but your mind, body, heart is doing something right now with that memory or that thought. It's doing this. It's squeezing. It's typing. Because it doesn't realize what it's doing, basically. The mind not understanding suffering is the cause of suffering. And <clears throat> this is such a powerfully empowering insight to have. One, first, that reflecting on how suffering arises and 
how it ceases, is the most relevant thing for wisdom the reflecting mind to be doing all day long. Regardless, and it's not like you got to give up everything else you do for the day. You could be partying with a friend or sitting quietly, you know, watching your breath go in and out, meditating. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's always relevant whether now, in this moment, of whatever you're doing, the heart feels bound up, whether it's hard to bear, whether it's heavy, whether it's tight, whether it's restless, whether it's heavy and dull, creepy. The question is, can there be interest in that? Oh, oh, this hurts. Yeah, this is hard to bear. Because by getting intimate with that, that means we're not resisting it, and it doesn't it means we're not denying it or telling ourselves that Sort of, we're actually, like with Dope No Mind, we're curious about it. And when we're open in that more open, not fixed state with the experience of suffering, let's say, or stress, then there's a possibility of seeing what activity of mind, what point of view, what quality of mind is supporting that experience of the heart being bound up. So just bring to mind a situation that relates to you, or you experience it as hard to bear. Some fear, like financial anxiety, or some old pain about some relationship you're in or have been in, or some fear you have, or some some rage about how um, sort of off our culture is, or our world is, how much ignorance there is in the world. If you bring one of those things to mind, and we'll notice that, we'll begin to notice if we're just there with it, without trying to figure anything out, but just basically going right to the feeling point. Oh, it feels. Ouch. And then we'll begin to see that basic correlation. What thoughts, what quality of thought correlates with the squeeze in the heart? So when that thought, that quality arises, then the squeeze is there. And when it isn't there, there's no squeeze. So how is it? What correlates to the feeling of the experience of stress and suffering. This is what Ajahn Sumedho says about the Four Noble Truths. I'm not sure, I think this is in his book, The Way It Is, which you can download online. It's online. Ajahn Sumedho is a Western Buddhist monk. One of the more senior monks he ordained with back in the <clears throat> mid-60s. So he's been a monk for over 40 years now. He's in his 80s. He says, in terms of the four noble truths, or suffering in the, the end of suffering, he says, you can memorize this, then wherever you are, you've got something to contemplate. Eventually, you let go of all these things, because they're not ends in themselves either, but they're like tools to be used. You learn to use these tools, and when you finish, 
You don't need to hang on to them. Right? So the reflection, like to be interested in suffering and the end of suffering, is what we do when we're a suffering being. Right? As long as you're a suffering being, it's literally insane not to be interested in the experience of being a suffering being. Because the way out is to be interested, to, to bring a fresh mind. The thing is, we think we're interested in suffering, but we, it's based on a conclusion, like we already know what suffering is. It's like, I don't have ice cream, or I'm not home in bed, or nobody loves me. So, we're not actually curious about the experience of suffering because we're pretty sure what the problem is. You know, usually somebody else is the cause of our suffering. So we know we're doing this work when we don't have an answer. We know that we don't know about suffering, so we're willing to be curious. It's so easy to be certain like to basically rationalize or justifies, justify our heart being tight. Because the world's imperfect, our partner's imperfect, our personality's imperfect, our body's imperfect, common meditation center's imperfect, monk's imperfect. So we have some idea that some, there's a cause, and it's always external. Even if I say my body or my personality, we externalize that. Like, that personality of mine is causing me to suffer. You know, this quality of mind is causing me to suffer. But in any case, that fixed idea keeps us from being open and looking in a fresh way. Actually, it being interested and intimate with the dynamic of suffering, because suffering is happening here and now. So Ajahn goes on here, he says, Signifying this, the Buddha referred to his teachings as a rap, which you can make out of things around you. You don't have to have a special motorboat, or submarine, or luxury liner. A raft is something you make from the things around you, just across to the other shore. We're not trying to make a super-duper vehicle. We can use what's around us for enlightenment. The raft is to carry us across the sea of ignorance. And when we get to the other shore, we can let it go. Which doesn't mean we have to throw it away. We just stop using So this is interesting. So the Buddha used the image a lot of floods that sweep us away. And the floods that sweep us away aren't those things external. It's like what our mind does with them. So you may act in an obnoxious way, but then the flood isn't you being impolite. The flood is what my mind does. The thought, how dare that person Right? And then that's just the beginning of the flood. And then my mind proliferates because it gets identified with the first movement. How dare that person act that way at Congress? And then I start to proliferate. And that's literally like a flood. Right? You know, when we get swept away, whatever it is, we read something in the news, we see somebody doing something on the street, we do something stupid, how, what an idiot I am. And then on and on. That reminds us of all the other stupid things we've done. And on and on like that. And we get swept away. So the Buddha says we need to build a raft to go across to not get swept away by these floods. And we find the equipment for the raft right here. Whatever we need 
the V3 is here. The problem is here, and the resolution of the problem is here. And that turns out to be really important to remember. Because it's very easy to think, well, I've got to get out of Buddhist meditation retreat, and then I'll take care of my suffering. Or I need to get into shape so I can sit and meditate. Or I need to take care of all these problems in my life so that I can... We always put it off. But when we're suffering, the cause is here, not later. It's here. And the resolution is here. It's basically the cessation of the cause. So if what's going on right now is, in some way we're throwing wood in the fire, then the resolution of the problem is to stop throwing wood in the fire, because then the fire will go out. But we have to be willing to be intimate with the process of body and mind, the way it is, in order to realize how wood, fuel, is being thrown in the fire. And this is another image that Buddha used. You know, he used a lot of simple images, like the flood, the building a raft, crossing the flood, he also, one of the common images he used is the image of a fire. The fire of greed, anger, and delusion. That activity of mind that entangles the mind, burdens the mind, but it has to be fueled. So what's the fuel? Well, it's a combination of experience. But experience enough isn't enough. Like seeing somebody, hearing something, thinking something. It's experience, and then you need the match. Experience is what the fire is, the fuel. That the fuel needs to be, or the fire needs to be ignited, and the match is wrong view. So we take experience personal. We always want to blame the experience, like that somebody's doing something inappropriate. That is, the match is me taking that inappropriate action personally. How dare they do that? You know, how dare somebody wear shorts and a Buddhist meditation center, or, you know, something, something like that, you know, where we have ideas of etiquette that should be enforced, and what is that person thinking? And then we can, because of the taking it personally, then I've got two things. I have the image of somebody doing something I think is wrong, and that it's personal, like, that's offensive to me. You know, I don't want to be part of a community where people are so unaware so to always be interested in the, the two pieces, like, yeah, it always seems like it's the experience, but it's the wrong view that turns the experience into fuel. Because once it feels personal, then I can keep using that memory of what my wife didn't do or did do, or what, you know, the politician did or didn't do. And then I got a fire. Right? And I can bring up and then the identification and we get a good raging fire. So then we stop fueling it. Right? We stop fueling it partly by not bring, not bringing that incident to mind just to kind of help the fire abate a little bit. And then we start to see when it's not so blazing, maybe I don't need to take that image, that memory, that experience personally. Maybe it can just be nature and not self. Let me read a little bit more from this. <clears throat> this other shore 
can also be a delusion, because the other shore and this shore are really the same, right? Because you think the other shore would be, yeah, only I could be away from people doing things that are wrong. Then, that's the other shore. No, the other shore, freedom, isn't being away from people doing inappropriate things, or being out of this imperfect world, or away from this imperfect personality. The other shore is not being pushed around by the imperfections of other people, the world, ourselves, not being confused by the imperfections or the, you know, the defilements, being greedy. You know, if we think, yeah, my heart will be free when I'm no longer greedy, I have no more lust, you know, and when I'm not impatient, and I'm not averse, and I have no fears, and I'm never distracted or deluded or in denial. And it's like, we, yeah, only I didn't exist. <laughs> then I would be happy. But how can we be happy in existence with a sensitive heart, mind, and not only that, a conditioned mind, right? Now remember, this mind this conditioned mind, this personality has been conditioned by our culture, by the culture of the late 50s, United States, and 60s, right? Now, I don't know, some, most of you, some of you at least, were alive then. And you know, I mean, that means like, Viva to Beaver, Bonanza, those sort of values, that's the imprint here. Wonder Bread, and Got smoke. Yeah. So, and not only that, it gets worse. Because it's not just this cultural conditioning. And even, you know, my parents, of course, were conditioned by the late 20s and 30s, which in some ways, you know, even some of the conditioning there was even sort of more primitive or less enlightened or whatever you want to call it. But not only that, genetically, what, I, what this body and mind is acting out is not just the, the genes of humans, but the genes of other primates, other mammals, reptiles, fish, amoebas, right? Our genetic code includes all of the conditioning of all species, all beings, through time, right? If you remember your high school biology, you had a good high school biology class, you know, the study of embryology, all of that, it's not like they somehow, you know, deleted the old reptilian sort of genetic code. It's like built in. So when we snap at our partner, our loved ones, our friends, we're basically acting out what a snapping turtle does. You know, our own particular version of it, it's still there. All of that stuff, fear, tribalism, I mean, all that kind of stuff is still built in culturally, genetically. So the question is for us, how to be free, how to be kind, how to be, to relate wisely, skillfully, without our hearts being tied up in knots, given that there is this conditioning, that we're living out this conditioning. What is the way? So we have to get beyond this mythology of perfection, the perfect person who has transcended all prejudice, transcended all limitations of culture and 
limitations of our genetic code. Right? And we we like this. It's very seductive. You know, we tend to put religious leaders like, you know, I think, you know, given the choices, the Pope seems like a pretty good guy. But I always, and I feel the same about the Dalai Lama, and I think he's probably a pretty good guy too. But I always get suspicious when we put these people up there as if they're somehow perfect. Because what I find inspiring is not some idea of perfection, but I find inspiring, like in my teachers, people who can, who clearly see the limitations of their personality, their cultural conditioning, their bodies, their scope of understanding. They see the limitations. They're not ashamed of the limitations. They stay attuned to the limitations. And they're not they're not acting out like an embarrassment or feeling oppressed because they know how to stay attuned. Right? So like in, in my case, you know, slowly, gradually learning about the limitations of being a white, straight, you know, now middle-aged, getting into my late fifties, you know, well-educated person. You know, I used to, you know, feel on top of the world, and now slowly, gradually seeing all the limitations that come with that particular set of conditioning, which allows for more skill in the world, and less suffering for me, and I think probably, hopefully, for others, as I become wiser. You know, where we get, like, how this body-mind has been traumatized, how this body-mind has operated in un- with unawareness and cultural blindness. And this is part of the awakening process. So wisdom is first realizing that we're actually, even though we may not fully embody it, we're actually interested in suffering and the end of suffering, interested enough to keep it front and center all day long. And then teasing out the idea of perfection. Like that the freedom, what wisdom knows is that the freedom isn't about not being human, not being imperfect. The freedom is in not suffering with conditions as they are. Isn't that the freedom you're interested in? We're interested in not not being who we are because this is who we are. Like, that would be postponing it. Like, as soon as I'm not who I am, then I'll be free. But I'm actually interested in being free now, not later when I, you know, not who I am, whatever that would be. What does freedom look like now? So wisdom understands it. Like, that's a wisdom we really trust when we see it in other people. Like, they're, they're learning how to you know, not learning how to be a saint, but they're learning how to be who they are. Like, how to have this body, this life circumstance, and even more extraordinarily, how to have this personality, this limited conditioned personality, and be happy, be free, and learn how to be kind and skillful with this personality, and all of its trauma. And you can be a human being, even, you know, a relatively privileged human being, you know, in terms of 
positive conditions that I've had in my life without being traumatized. And some people really traumatized by culture, by family of origin, or whatever, you know, the different ways, illness, poverty, that can be traumatizing. Let me just finish this paragraph, or these two paragraphs. It's merely an allegory, right? The shore, the other shore. It's merely an allegory. We have never really left the other shore, right? The freedom we seek is here by not having a problem, not being confused by the conditions. We've always been on the other shore anyway, and the raft is something we use to remind us that we don't really need a raft. So there's absolutely nothing to do except to be mindful to sit, stand, walk, lie down, eat your food, breathe, all the opportunities as humans to do good. We have this lovely opportunity in the human realm to be good, to be kind, to be generous, to love others, to serve and help others. This is one of the loveliest qualities of being human. We can decide not to do evil. We, can we don't have to kill, lie, still, distract ourselves or drug ourselves or get lost in moods and feelings. We can be free from all that. It's a wonderful opportunity in the human form to refrain from evil and to do good. Not in order to store up merit for the next life, but because this is the beauty of our humanity. Being a human can be a joyful experience rather than an onerous task. And I'm reminded of what Joseph Goldstein, one of my important teachers, said, just in terms of summarizing this, and I think this is a nice, another nice expression of wisdom, just summarizing our practice. So a couple things we've talked about. Suffering in the end of suffering as an ongoing theme. Understanding that it's not about transcending the limitations, but understanding the limitations, understanding the conditions as just being what they are. It's just a thought. It's just a disposition, a habit. And when we understand that it's like when somebody says something obnoxious to us and we want to strike back, there's, with awareness, we think, oh, well, yeah, there's that personality, that habit that wants to strike back, but that's just a feeling here in the moment. It feels like this. It's just like a compulsion like this. But we have the option to just be intimate with it. And when it's a wholesome impulse, we can be intimate with it and act it out in the world. And when it's an unwholesome impulse, we can be intimate with it and just let it move internally, but not let it express in terms of words and action, because it doesn't help anybody to act out rage or to act out, you know, some negative reaction. So we're understanding that freedom comes from understanding how not to be confused by the conditions of the moment, not transcending the conditions of the moment, not be confused, not be pushed around or imprisoned, taking them personally. And then this last sort of summary or expression of wisdom from Joseph Goldstein, he talks about the whole path of three ways. He says, the basic method is awareness, right? It's so easy to remember, like, because there's a lot of teachings, you know, 40 books, basically, big books, 
that's all the Buddhist talks that have been first orally transmitted and then eventually they were written down. And now, you know, we have 40 volumes of these talks, basically, of the Buddha and other um, people at the time of the Buddha. But they all come down to uh, the basic method, which is to pay attention. So to pay attention means we need a balanced, clear, steady, and continuous mindful awareness. Knowing it's like this now. It's like this now. This experience is being now, and it's like this now. So that's the basic method. There really isn't all the other methods somehow fit in there, including compassion and kindness, because without compassion and kindness, we're not going to be interested in being aware. Awakens. So he says the basic method is awareness. The basic motive force that I mentioned just a moment ago, or the expression or the quality of that awareness is compassion. Right? That's the motive force. Like I'm steady with my presence, my mindful awareness. I'm fearless with it. I'm patient with it because I care about this life. And when I understand that I care about this life, it's really hard not to care about other lives. Because in the same way that I care about this life, if I'm at all sensitive, I realize you care about your life in exactly the same way that I care about my life. So this compassion is the expression of our practice. The method of our practice is mindfulness. The motive force or the coloring of it, the expression of it is compassion. And he says the essence of it is wisdom, which in this sense is this curiosity, like beginning with humility, knowing that we don't know and we want to understand. That's the essence of wisdom in this case. The, the, the development of understanding. And you know what that means then is the only problem is ignorance. And so wisdom is this interest in understanding. And what's ignorance? Thinking you already understand. Now this is endemic. Not just out there. Here. In our own mind and heart. We think we understand. Whenever we think we got it, you can be sure we don't got it. The Buddha said exactly that. He said no matter how you conceive it, like what the practice is, or what happiness is, no matter how you conceive it, it will always be otherwise, because it can't be contained as a concept. You can't grasp it as an idea, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. Oh, now I get what I'm supposed to do in life. Because that means we fixed it as an idea. But it's never an idea. It's always a moment-to-moment thing. Freedom, happiness, enlightenment, nirvana. You never get it. Nobody ever gets it. That's If you think that's it, if you think you got it, you know you didn't get it. Because it's a lived experience. That means it's moment to moment to moment. Enlightenment is moment to moment to moment. You may experience in them a moment of enlightenment or a moment of relative freedom, but you don't got enlightenment. Right? You just had, there was an experience and it was known and now it's gone. And now what's relevant is this moment, longing for that moment, right? That's not enlightenment, that's suffering, right? So no matter what powerful insight we have had, 
lovely to hear. It'd be nice to hear from folks what you've been learning in your practice that may be relevant or not so relevant to what I said tonight, or questions that you might have. And Ellen, I think, has the mic, so pass it to you if you raise your hand. It's always nice if you don't mind saying your name. And uh, also, just so you know, we usually record on Sunday nights, so just that in mind, those go up on the web, so if you don't want to say your name, don't say your name. <laughs> We'd like to share with the group. Hi, my name is Alex. Um, something that I've been thinking about uh, is the fact that throughout this talk, my back has been seizing up, and it's like, if I try to stand up or sit up really straight in a way that feels like centered and like aligned for my body, um, it, this really acute sense of muscle groups is like tightening up, and it's a literal like feeling of discomfort. And I'm wondering, like, we've been talking, or you've been talking a lot about um, moving away, or trying to be at ease with um, the way that the heart squeezes around emotional pain and the kinds of things that, you know, other people might do um, to impact people. But I'm wondering about physical pain and, you know, kinds of, like, what your options are around it. Because thinking about that fire, I could either see it as adding like fuel to that fire by remaining to stay seated in an upright position, or I could see like adding fuel to that fire and getting pushed around by trying to readjust my body in a way that doesn't have my muscle groups seize up. And it's like, what is a skillful way to move about pain and to adjust myself? Is it just like not letting it get to me? Or is it actually like understanding it in a way that I know how to adjust myself to better accommodate it? Yeah, that's a really good question, Alex. And, uh, you know, we begin by uh, committing, understanding from our own experience that whether I stay still and work with the pain, or whether I skillfully make adjustments and try to modify the pain, whatever I do, I'm going to do it with the attitude of compassion. And the thing is, we don't, we can't always often even control the outcomes of our experience, because there's a lot of things at play. It may be your attitude is one of those things at play affecting this, and it may be like choosing to sit in the way that you're sitting is part of the causes for whatever you're experiencing, that it may be that those two things are relatively minor uh, effects, or causes rather, for what you're experiencing. There may be many other things, like injury, or who knows what else. So you may not have too many cards to play, but you could, you, the cards you, we always have to play are what the Buddha calls wholesome intentions, and the non-use of unwholesome intentions. So it, it's less about what you decide to do, but more about whatever you decide to do, to do with wholesome intentions, which the intention of generosity and renunciation are considered the same, so letting go, keeping things simple, being generous, the intention of compassion, and the intention of kindness. And basically all wholesome intentions probably fit under any of those three. And then all the unwholesome can 
that underwent obesity, which would be cruelty, like being aggressive, pushy, impatient, um, ill will, like just not wanting to be with it. It's the opposite, willing to be intimate with what's going on. And agree, you know, wanting this to be gone. Imagining, oh, it was so nice yesterday, I want that back. Or being stingy in some way. Basically, all of these involve a squeeze in the heart, and all of these involve the releasing of the heart. So, as we deal with physical pain, it's really not that different than dealing with a difficult person in our life. It's just that instead of the difficult person, we have the difficult, painful sensations. And it's not always easy to know what to do with the difficult person in our lives. In the same way with physical pain. And like you said so well, you know, thinking that, well, I'm going to really do something, I'm going to study, I'm going to get on the internet, I'm going to move my body, I'm going to lie down and come around my palm instead of sitting in a chair. That may or may not help. I mean, if we don't want to neglect being creative and how we deal with physical pain or a difficult person, but we don't want to assume that we're going to figure it out. No matter how confident we are, no matter what experts we talk to, we may not get any clarity about it. And the thought that I'm going to figure this out is its own kind of suffering, which you kind of pointed to. You know, So we don't want to assume that fixing it actually is less suffering than just staying with it. The fact is, we just don't know. We have to experiment. But... <clears throat> The experimentation is really uh, first and foremost about I'm, whatever I, however I experiment to see how I might alleviate this pain, I'm going to be doing it with right intention, kindness, compassion, and generosity. And if I can't act from those three um, intentions, then I'm going to wait until I can. So I'm going to practice waiting until I can find some intention. And if anyway I do something out of one of those unwholesome intentions, then I'm going to take it as a teacher and I'm going to learn my lesson well. Those intentions cause tension. Because right? we need we will act out those unwholesome intentions. We do it all the time. But if we're going to do it, then let's learn. They don't work. They cause the mind, the body to get more entangled. Thanks, Alex. Did you have a yeah, you want to ask Michael? My name's David. I was, uh, as you were talking earlier about how the only thing that's important is uh, it's understanding our suffering and how to end suffering and focusing on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought back today, I was taking a walk with my husband, and I was complaining about something that had gone wrong at work. My computer broke, I'm sure everybody can relate to that. It wasn't working, and I couldn't get it to work, and I was very frustrated. And what I was talking with him about was not how to fix it, but why I was why it bothered me in the first place. That's what was I was curious. I thought, why am I so preoccupied? And I was starting to think, as you said, about why am I secret? What's the cause of this? Really, not and not the broken computer. I knew there was something else. Why was I worried about work on Sunday anyway? Why was I logged into the office? Why, you know, there, there, there are lots of things. And I, I knew at some level it was slipping from me, but I knew that 
that I didn't have to be here. Right? I chose to go to that place and do that thing and react in a certain way. And I appreciated your talk because it, it helped me to go another step in my mind just to say, yep, yeah, it makes me feel like, yeah, that curiosity is a good thing to think about. Yeah. Not just why is the X broken, but why, why do I let it bother me so much? Why can't I, why am I so attached to it? Why can't I just let it go and enjoy the sunshine and the beautiful air? Right. And, but it, some of those things, like the computer not working or doing our work on Sunday when maybe we don't have to, if we really follow that curiosity, it may take you to the place that there's a, a more subtle but the ultimately more part there, uneasiness in the heart of not being in control. So doing our work all the time, or checking our email all the time, or even reading the news all the time, can be this deeper, more subtle, existential anxiety of like, in the same way that uh, another four-legged beast might const- constantly be looking for food, or looking out for predators, you know, we might be checking our email or reading the New York Times or, you know, doing, doing work at home. And then instead of uh, being free, what we're doing is making peace with that underlying anxiety. Well, can it be okay being a vulnerable beast, being an insecure beast? Because we are, you know, we are vulnerable. Nothing's for sure. Some of you know, a dear friend of mine and a longtime leader in the center was out at our Common Grounds Retreat property uh, 12 days ago or so, and the tractor, he was pulling out some buckboard, flipped over right on top of a pillow. And Denny Johnson, we have some of his pictures on the bulletin board right outside the wall. This was their vibrant, important leader of our community, and gone, just like that. So we all know this. I mean, we have our own stories of how things like this happen all the time. And so on some level, we're in denial, but underneath, we're not in denial. We know that we're living as a vulnerable, fragile beast. We've got this little pump pumping away, you know, and this electrical activity that could easily get interrupted. It does. I mean, little brain malfunctions. And the whole thing can fall apart. It does regularly around people around us. So this anxiety is here. So we're, we, when we're interested in suffering, the end of suffering, we have to make peace with reality instead of taking denial or distraction. You know, and so often doing the work at home is a way of avoiding feeling what we feel, which is, but when we make peace with that underlying anxiety, the world opens up. We start to really connect with each other. Then we see the trees, you know, we feel the breeze, and we feel the truth of love and connection, because we understand that it's pointed. You know, what ruins relationships is we take them for granted. But when we realize that it's not that way, it's like, it's always amazing you go home and your friend's there, your partner's there. You know, and the cat's still there, the grass is still there, you know, because it won't always be something. Anyway, thanks for sharing that. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words. It's the time, it's time to take a few breaths together.
grateful for all the people, women and men, with the Buddha on down. They had busy lives, complicated lives. They did their practice as best they could. And in this way, one generation after another, these teachings have been passed down. And like it or not, now it's our turn. We're hearing these teachings. We're interested in becoming wiser and kinder, more free human beings. It's our turn to become part of the causes for freedom from suffering in our lives and in the world. Please be self. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.